Is there something in your hometown that you just huff to tell people about? Some kind of roadside attraction that's, well, weird? Something that you force all out-of-town visitors to visit no matter what because it's the most odd thing you've ever experienced? Just me? At the ripe old age of 64, Samuel P. Dinsmore, or as we'll call him, Sam, starts construction on his populist masterpiece. Using 113 tons of cement and many, many tons of limestone, he transformed them into an 11-room log cabin and surrounded the mansion, because in my book, 11 rooms makes a mansion, not a cabin, with 150 sculptures. But frankly, that's only the beginning of the strangeness of this man, the myth, the legend, S.P. Dinsmore. We're headed to the Gata de Vida, baby. Welcome to Capers and Cocktails, true crime that doesn't take itself too seriously and obviously gives you something to enjoy while you listen. The following content may be disturbing to some. Discretion is advised. If you're enjoying one of our themed cocktails, ensure you're of legal drinking age and have fun, but drink responsibly. All right, so I think it's important for me to say that a lot of this story comes from my recollection from visiting the Garden of Eden several times, the first time when I was about seven. Check out this absolutely sweet picture of me from the early 90s, baby. I've been obsessed with it ever since. I visited at least one more time in college, but I've been known to wax poetic about the Garden of Eden and the man S.P. Dinsmore for as many minutes as people will let me. And I have to say this, if you are ever anywhere near Lucas, Kansas, and we're talking like within 10 hours of Lucas, Kansas, you absolutely 100% with no excuses must go. It is so fascinating. You, you have to visit for yourself. I'm trying very hard not to make this the longest episode I've ever written, but I make new promises. But first, let's drink. Okay, I gotta say, honestly, I was worried about this drink. I am not a pour yourself a bourbon neat and sip it all night kind of a gal. I need my drinks to be, well, sweet. Sometimes overly sweet. Sometimes sweet to the point that my friends make fun of me constantly for how sweet my drinks need to be. (laughs) So uh, the amount of alcohol in this drink intimidated me some, but I've got to say it's one of my favorite drinks I've ever put together. It's surprisingly light, fizzy, and I can see how it would really well uh, put you on your ass. It's unclear when the Chatham Artillery Punch was first created. Some say the Revolutionary War, but more than likely it was created around the 1850s, just before the dawn of the Civil War. No matter who made it, every man who drank it, legend holds, uh, got very drunk. Can confirm. Can confirm. The original Chatham Artillery Punch was created likely for a military social, which was a gathering either to send off soldiers or a party for veterans. It was made in a horse bucket with ice, and it had rum, brandy, and cognac. Then champagne was added just before it was given to some lucky soldier to slurp down. Paul Rabe, the head bartender at the American Prohibition Museum, says, quote, The champagne actually helps lengthen the drink. It makes sense, but only to a Savannian, that to make your drink less strong and lengthen it, you would add more alcohol, end quote. Today's mocktail tastes quite different, but it is also delicious. I have to be honest, 
I would not drink any non-alcoholic spirit by itself. I've tried several and honestly, they're pretty gross. But in a mixed drink, they're all right. I'm not sure there's any way really to replicate the bite of alcohol perfectly. So this drink is different in its mocktail form. For the cocktail, you'll need bourbon, cognac, spiced rum, simple syrup, lemon juice, champagne, and a pinch of nutmeg. For the mocktail, you'll need non-alcoholic bourbon. This is the kind that I bought. The link is in the description box. You'll need pear juice, rum syrup. I also got this on Amazon. Simple syrup, lemon juice, club soda, and a pinch of nutmeg. All right, we'll start with the cocktail. We'll put one part bourbon, one part cognac, one part spiced rum, one part simple syrup, and a half a part lemon juice into our shaker. We'll shake it vigorously, and then we will strain it over fresh ice. No horse buckets here today, unfortunately. We'll top with two parts champagne and a pinch of nutmeg. For our mocktail, we'll take one part non-alcoholic bourbon, one part pear juice, one part rum syrup, she thick, one part simple syrup, and a half a part lemon juice. Put those into the shaker. Shake, 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 shake. Shake your shaker. Then we will <laughs> strain over ice and add two parts club soda and that fancy pinch of nutmeg. And now you're ready to drink, but be careful. You've been warned. Samuel Perry Dinsmore, or S.P. Dinsmore, or Sam Dinsmore, was born near Coolville, Ohio on March 8, 1843, to mom Laura and dad William. He was a middle child, and uh, as you'll see later, he did have some middle child tendencies. He was a typical farm kid, so he would do his chores, and then he attended the classic one-room schoolhouse. He had fair complexion with brown hair and hazel eyes. When the Civil War struck, he was off to war. He was 19 years old, a mere 5 feet 5 inches tall, when he enlisted in the Army, joining Company B of the 116th Ohio Infantry on August 13, 1862. Sam would spend half or so of his three-year stint in the war as a regimental hospital nurse until the surrender of the South on April 9, 1865. It was in Athens County, Georgia, that Sam would join the American Free and Accepted Masons, a group he remained active in for his whole life. In 1866, Sam moved to Illinois, and from 1869 to 1874, he was a schoolteacher there. On August 24, 1870, Sam married Frances A. Barlow Journey. Frances was a widow with four children under the age of 10. So Sam dived right into fatherhood first at first. Oof, sheesh. Sam and Francis would have at least one other child together. He would farm there for 18 years where he would be described as a, quote, gentleman of superior intelligence and an honored citizen. Instead of living his life out in Illinois, for some reason, Sam decided to pack up and move to Kansas in 1888, specifically Lucas, Kansas. Lucas, Kansas, a town no more famous then than it is now, a town whose major downtown attraction was the Windmill and Water Tower, a town that apparently loved itself so much it proclaimed in the newspaper, quote, which town is located on the true site of the Garden of Eden? Lucas. Which town will be the future capital of the state of Kansas? Lucas. Where will the national capital be moved to? Lucas. Where will the white throne be placed on Judgment Day? Lucas, end quote. 
spoiler alert, only one of those things is like sort of, sort of come true. Yet anyway, regardless of the reason, Sam, Francis, and the younger children moved to Lucas, Kansas. The older children stayed back in Illinois. They were adults by this point. Sam and Francis bought a farm southeast of town and started farming. But by the early 1890s, things were pretty rough for farmers. Droughts and poor crops, they were plaguing farmers all around Sam. And banks were coming calling and foreclosing on properties whose owners couldn't pay the mortgage. In addition, Sam saw that during the 1890s, the railroad monopoly had an absolute chokehold on frontier towns like Lucas. They were rising prices so high that the cost to transport crops was higher than the crops themselves. All of this and other things, I'm certain, led S.P. Dinsmore down the path to populism. What's populism, you ask? Well, thanks for asking. The populist movement was quite popular <laughs> in the late 19th century. The populist or people's party had a couple of main things on the brain. All of these things were really designed to give farmers the same economic footing as business and other forms of industry. Their platform included an increase in the circulating currency, a graduated income tax, government ownership of the railroads, the direct election of U.S. officials, and the ability to recall public officials. I kind of like it. Sam was down with the populists even after they lost popularity. I'm so sorry. <laughs> At the beginning of the 20th century, he would run for local offices as well as serve as a delegate at conventions and rallies. Russell County, where Lucas is, was and is pretty staunchly Republican, so Sam lost quite a few elections in the 1890s. He did win one in 1896 to become Justice of the Peace in Fairview Township, and he was lauded by the local newspaper for, well, preventing loose teams of horses from running around downtown. S small victories. During the same time, Sam founded a secret society called the United Order of Anti-Monopolies, in case you were wondering what that means, you probably weren't. Uh, it was a society open to men, women, and children over the age of 16 who were interested in the, quote, expiration of the deadly fungus growth monopoly, end quote. The local newspaper at one point referred to the organization as a group of anarchists. So let's just say they weren't the most popular, also not so secret, society. <laughs> After losing a bid for the Kansas House of Representatives in 1898, Sam vowed never to run for public office again. He didn't. He got busy with other things. At the age of 62, Sam and his 65-year-old wife retired. The year was 1905. They sold their farm and bought a plot of land in the center of town at the corner of Kansas and 2nd Streets. That would soon become the Garden of Eden. It appears Sam chose this site with the public in mind, and it worked. In 1906, neighbors began to notice that Sam was building a fence. Okay. Out of cement. Strange. It was something that hadn't been seen before, at least in that small town. And the newspaper made its comment, of course, saying, quote, S.P. Dinsmore is building a cement fence, which will be the noblest fence in town when it is finished. He is doing the work himself and claims that it will not cost him much, as his own time is not worth anything. He is quite a genius. He can do anything he tries and make anything he wants. 
end quote. But he didn't stop with a fence. He conceptualized the idea of a log cabin made completely out of post-rock limestone quarried near Wilson Lake, a mere eight miles away, and he began to build it. He had the stone quarried in long, narrow lengths, some up to 20 feet long. The stone was then laid up with dovetailed corners, so it had the look of a log cabin. He then took 3,000 feet of redwood, oak, and walnut to create elaborate moldings and baseboards. None of the doors and windows were the same size. His home was the first in town with running water because he illegally tapped into the water main. (laughs) The story may have ended in 1909 as Sam and Francis put the house up for sale, but there were no offers or at least no offers that Sam would accept. And so Sam and Francis remained living in the house. They started sculpting in cement. He started with creating a grape arbor from the back porch to the road. In the arbor, he built a little face with a hand waving at his wife in the kitchen. And then, at the end of the arbor, Sam created Adam and Eve, eight feet tall, marbles for eyes. Adam wears Masonic insignia. For the next six years, Sam would build trees and figures from cement, finishing in 1915. There would be several other figures in this portion of the Garden of Eden, including the devil himself. The devil has glowing red eyes. At some point, the town asked him to cover the naughty bits, so he put clothes over his cement figures. In one of his sculptures, the Tree of Life and Death, he actually put a pipe going the whole length of the tree and down into his basement. This was so that he could go into his basement and talk through the pipe and then he could be the characters in his garden. He could also scare passerby that were trying to get a glimpse of the statues without paying admission. Yes, at this point, the Garden of Eden, as you can imagine, was becoming a tourist attraction. Sam had rigged lighting onto and in his sculptures, and that could be seen from the train stop in town. So many people, passersby, wanted to see this attraction. In fact, the train would stop for an extra half hour in Lucas so that people could go to the Garden of Eden without fear of missing their train. Sam created some postcards to sell to tourists. One of these postcards was an image of a cement casket with Masonic insignia on the front and a double exposed photo of him both in the casket and looking at himself in the casket. He would also pose for tourists in that casket if they wanted, wearing the same three-piece suit that he wore in the postcard. Clearly, the man liked the attention of not only his home being an oddity, but him being an oddity himself. In addition to the coffin, he constructed an entire mausoleum. It's 40 feet high, shaped like a pyramid, and made of the same stone logs as his house. Now, let's be serious. Sam wasn't doing all this for free. He was retired. He needed some money to support his wife and to keep buying cement. So he charged 25 cents or a mere $7 today to tour the grounds and then another 25 cents to tour the house. He claimed to have 3,200 paying customers by 1917. That's about $23,000 in today's money over the course of two years, which isn't bad, but they certainly weren't becoming millionaires with this tourist attraction in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. He might have had some other sources of money that were a little, well, off the record, if you know what I mean, but honestly, there isn't much evidence for this other than rumors. 
The truth is, Sam still had his Civil War pension. They had money left over from selling his wife's first farm in Illinois, and as you can imagine, Sam was also pretty entrepreneurial. He charged people to breed with his horses, he sold life insurance to his neighbors, and did a bunch of other stuff. He deemed himself the cement wizard of the world and continued sculpting. He was actually featured for his innovative use of cement in a magazine called Cement Era. Very, very interesting magazine, I'm sure, for the new building industry. Maybe he was a wizard after all. So if you'll remember, Sam was a populist, but his initial sculptures weren't really weren't really populist or political in any way. They were religious. But the politics in his sculptures exploded after the 1914 Ludlow Massacre. If you don't know, uh, the Ludlow Massacre was a pretty horrific incident that happened in Colorado in 1914. There, about 10,000 mining workers were on strike and had been on strike for seven months for absolutely atrocious working conditions and poor pay. They were working for monopoly maker and business magnate John D. Rockefeller. Junior. The Colorado National Guard was deployed to reduce violence, but they opened fire on the camp, killing 25 people, some in absolutely horrific ways, including being suffocated and burned when they set fire to the protesters' tents. So Sam sculpted his feelings about monopolies in cement. He started with an octopus, which he named Trust. Its tentacles wrap around the waist of a woman a man's knapsack, the earth, and cement forms labeled bonds and interest. He would write about the sculpture saying, quote, aren't we a fool set of voters? They are protected by the star-spangled banner. That flag protects capital today more than it does humanity, end quote. And thus it continued until there were about 150 sculptures made from 113 tons of cement. It's a lot of statues and way more than I can describe in this episode. By the way, if you're not watching and you're listening, this might be the episode to hop over to YouTube because I am putting a lot of pictures up to be seen. And trust me, this is a place that has to be seen to be believed. You could just go to YouTube. Okay, you, you, you get it. In 1917, Francis Dinsmore died at age 78 after a long illness. The next part of this is part legend and part fact, but I'm pretty sure it's all true. And, and not just because I've heard the same story since I was seven. So after her death, Sam evidently asked the town for permission to inter her in his mausoleum in his backyard. The city declined and had her buried in the town's cemetery. What happened next was that Sam, in the dead of night, took a shovel and dug his wife up from the cemetery, brought her home, and reinterred her in the mausoleum. But in classic S.P. Dinsmore fashion, he interred her completely in cement. By the time the town figured it out, she was pretty solidly stuck in the mausoleum. And, well, she's remained there ever since. And she's, she's there still today. Yeah, we're not done yet. Okay. Sometime in 1921, Emily Brozak, a Czechoslovakian immigrant, moved in with Sam as a live-in housekeeper and baby mama. In 1924, when Emily was 20 and Sam was 81, they got pregnant. 
they would be married, a town scandal, I'm sure, on April 22nd, 1924, and their daughter, Emily Jane Dinsmore, was born in September of that year. Apparently, the newspaper had no other news to report, so they talked to this guy a lot. Uh, and when a reporter interviewed him, he said he had no issues with their age difference. He felt as young as she was. Their second child, John William Dinsmore, was born in 1928. Sam put down the cement trowel around 1924 when he was 81 years old. He had cataracts, and because he was going blind, it was too difficult to continue sculpting. Also, he was making babies, so yeah. <laughs> Sam would go completely blind by 1929. He left one sculpture unfinished. A figure representing labor is being crucified by the figures of a lawyer, a preacher, a doctor, and a banker. He would write, quote, labor is crucified above. I believe labor has been crucified between a thousand grafters ever since labor begun, but I could not put them all up, so I've put up the leaders, lawyer, doctor, preacher, and banker. I do not say they are all grafters, but I do say they are leaders of all who eat cake by the sweat of the other fellow's face. End quote. This man did not like big business. Got it. Got it. In the 1920s, Sam would publish a pictorial book about his sculptures. You can access it for free online, and it's where I got a lot of the quotes for today's upload. I would never argue that S.P. Dinsbor was a humble man. Let's just say that. Samuel Perry Dinsmore died on July 27, 1932, in a room in the house he built with his own hands. His funeral was carried out, as he requested, by his Masonic brethren. They followed all of his wishes, including to be interred in the family mausoleum in the backyard. Only, Sam wanted to be interred in a glass coffin. Yes, you heard that correctly. And, and they did it. Emily continued to live on the property through the Great Depression with her second husband until 1933. Her second husband would eventually serve in World War II. <laughs> For those of you paying attention, her first husband served in the Civil War and her second husband served in World War II. She may be the only person that that, that is true for. <laughs> it's wild to me. The two of them would have two more children together. When they could no longer afford to live in Lucas, Laura Elizabeth Mansfield, Sam's stepdaughter from his first marriage, would purchase the property. They rented out rooms as apartments, often to school teachers. I think it's pretty safe to say that none of them knew that behind the padlocked door to the mausoleum was their landlord's mom, interred in cement, and their landlord's stepdad in a glass coffin. In 1967, Wayne Negala, a, a local merchant, bought the house and restored it. It was opened up to visitors in 1969, and it's been a tourist attraction ever since. In 1989, the site was purchased by the organization that maintains and preserves it still today. Emily Brozak Dinsmore Ronkles died in 1995 at the age of 91, and she's buried in Excelsior Springs, Missouri. Emily and Sam's daughter, Emily Jane Dinsmore Stevenson, died on March 12, 2013, after an illustrious career as a music teacher in Omaha. A portion of her ashes lie in the same Dinsmore mausoleum. Their son, John William Dinsmore, a Vietnam and Korea War veteran, as well as a longtime government employee, died on November 4, 2013. Before he died, he was the oldest living child of a U.S. Civil War veteran. Wild. 
The Garden of Eden underwent a massive preservation project in 2012, underwritten by the Kohler Foundation. It is their largest preservation project to date. Two art conservationists from the International Artifacts of Perlin, Texas, and a rotating staff of four to six assistants, worked for five months every day and completed their treatment. The Garden of Eden has been hailed in art journals as a, quote, outstanding example of primitive American folk art. Today, the town of Lucas, Kansas, remains a very, very small town, less than 500 people. Its main attraction, no doubt, is the Garden of Eden. It's on the National Register of Historic Places and attracts over 10,000 people per year. The site is run by the Friends of S.P. Dinsmore's Garden of Eden, and for a mere $9, you can get a tour of, well, the grounds, the house, it's a pretty good deal already, and yes, the body of S.P. Dinsmore, encased in glass in that mausoleum. His son John would explain, quote, it was dad's desire for people to come look at him in the coffin after he died, end quote. In fact, Sam himself would say, quote, I promise everyone that comes in to see me that if I see them dropping a dollar in the hands of a flunky and I see the dollar, I will give them a smile. I guess he's getting his wish. What a weirdo. Thanks for hanging out with me. I mean, this place is truly mind-boggling. You can imagine why I've been obsessed with it since I was seven. By the way, I didn't I didn't see his body when I was seven. That that I waited for that until I was older. Oh, and I should mention that at one point in the 90s, I think they did discover a leak in that glass coffin, so Sam has decomposed a little bit. You should probably check him out while he still has that smile. <laughs> Oof. Next week, we're talking about a still unsolved case about a geriatric bank robber, and with it, a drink for a seasoned person, a Tom Collins. As always, the ingredients for the drink are in the description box, so go shopping. This is not a drill, people. Follow me on all the social media sites, especially Facebook, because I have like five, maybe 10 friends, and it's, that's sad. A pity follow, maybe, please? Like, subscribe, hit the bell, write a review, and go shopping, people. Tom Collins time. I'll see you next week. And remember, there are always, you know what? Actually, actually, I think what Sam did was fine. Fun, even. You should do it. Sure, there are alternatives, but why? Go get yourself some cement.